everybody, how are you doing? It's Boozy back for another episode of Boozy's Legal Funhouse, episode 11 that we're on today. Before we get started, I have to read off the names of the Patreon supporters here at Boozy's Legal Funhouse. So without further ado, all of our $5 level and above producers. Special thanks to Jeremy the Head Fox and Wolf in a Barrel, Dragor, Jack of All Korgs, Nikolai, Tezcat Magic, Jag, Waylon DeRoche, Beaten, Doze of the Trash Panda, Eddie the Weather Fox, Mark Beckwar, Mama T, Uncle Kage, Ask Jeeves, Lisa Lupe, Mark Phaedrus, Netherlinks, Pandemonium Hawk, Petrov Neutrino, Scott Skunk, Tyranth, Buddy Good Boy, CC Otter, Chroma Hydra, David Hunter, Ed B. Collie, Evie Solace, Feck, Ghost Goat, Grace Jane Gollinger, Ian Delahorn, Jason Knight, Just Dave, Just James, Kallik, Coma Blood Paul, Mark Whipple, Michael Blocker, Sean Rabbit, The Dragon Show, Wheelie, and Zeros the Line. It doesn't matter how often I tell people this is an actual legal podcast with actual lawyers. I know that the moment I read off the list of the Patreon supporters of Boozy's Legal Funhouse, it sounds like we have the weirdest zoo in the world supporting us. If you want to be part of that weird zoo, you can do that over at patreon.com slash liquor. I am the Boozy Barrister, Boozy Badger. This is April 5th. 2021 and we are recording live as we always do on this monday evening i have a special guest here with me tonight uh i'm not sure how special they are you've heard them several times at this point but why don't you go ahead and say hi hi Uh, i'm robin scully a buddy good boy esquire um so if you'd like to throw your bits up in my snagglepuss i would be glad to have that but uh this is boozy stream so i will let you uh Throw your bits uh, up in his snagglepuss. Every every time, I I have to remind you that this is actually the live recording for the podcast. And every time you oh, say God. something like "put your bits in my snagglepuss," and I just want to point out we that what this means when we do the live recordings. I do them on Twitch. There's something on Twitch called Bits. They're monetary units of support people can give to me during the streams and thereafter for the live recordings on this. But you understand, going back to radio drama, buddy, it sounds like you just told all of our listeners who aren't present in this room, who are listening to this on their favorite podcasting service later, to place their genitals and your face or my face? Oh, yeah. Why? What did you mean? God damn it, buddy. God damn it. That said, we have a great show tonight. Actually, we don't. We have a show tonight. Uh, we're going to be discussing the preemption of laws, the order of supremacy, and precedent and persuasive uh, court opinions. Uh, but before that, as always, we have to go into legal news. Now, buddy, I gave you over our three news articles tonight, and I'm going to spin the wheel of don't give a fuck to choose the one that we're going to start talking about first. The wheel of don't give a fuck has spoken, and we are at Suit alleges big law firm to use LexisNexis product to inflate bills for flat fee legal research from the ABA Journal on April 1st, 2021. I'm certain Squire Patton Boggs, a large law firm in the American South. 
is hoping that this is an April Fool's Day joke, but it certainly isn't. Squire Patton Boggs had filed a third circuit or a complaint against Lexus Nexus about fees. Lexus Nexus had charged them with a, a flat fee for all of their legal research, which we'll get into what that is. Well, fuck it, we'll get into it now. Le- the way lawyers conduct legal research now, we don't go to libraries. Libraries are old hat. What we do is we buy services like LexisNexis or Westlaw or Fastcase or we use Justia or Court Listener or things like that to look up opinions in cases and determine whether law is good or law is bad. Uh, things like that. LexisNexis and Westlaw are the two biggest players in the field. Well, LexisNexis has a flat fee service where you pay a monthly fee or an annual fee in some cases and you get unrestricted research. To understand this story, you have to understand that's not the way it always was. It used to be you paid by the search. So if you had to search one case, you paid to search that case. Then you would pay to click through that case to the case it cited and so on and so on and so on, which we would then bill to our clients at the end of each month as part of these soft fees for research. With the flat right. fee billing system, that has kind of gone the way of the dinosaur. Now you pay a monthly fee for legal research and have access to almost anything in the That's uh, right. Catalog. We've gone for the blockbuster system of renting one movie at a time, and well, that referenced that movie, so I've got to go rent the other one now so on and so forth. We've gone from that system to the Netflix system, if I may call it that. Um, So you have all you can eat access to whatever legal knowledge you like, as long as you pay for it up front at the beginning of the month or a year. Right. But, uh, and the, the way they get you onto this is almost like a drug dealer. You get into law school, and the law schools get like free access to Westlaw and LexisNexis, and it's an unrestricted catalog. So, as a law student, you're just using it to search fucking everything. And it's so nice, but it's like a first taste free situation. It's like you walk out into your law school's lobby, and they're giving you a hit of cocaine while hiding the rest under the table, but you get a fr- nice little water bottle with it as well i mean it's cocaine with a water bottle is what it is that's true i still have my water bottle yeah so do i i've got like a water bottle i've got like did they have lexus points when you were in law school um they did yeah i never wound up cashing them in for anything because most of their stuff sucked it was just you know cheap i got a blender and a slow cooker for my lexus oh points. oh yeah wow, i I missed out then. I should have done that. Oh, yeah. I got a blender and a slow cooker from my life. I still have them, too. They're still upstairs. <laughs> my Lexus Nexus branded slow cooker and blender from that. It, it was like gaming the system. It was like Pepsi points for legal research. Anyways. Pepsi so, points. That's another show. Squire Patton Boggs, full disclosure, my father actually worked with uh, a predecessor form of them, Ogden Squire. Uh, or Squire Ogden, I, I forget what it was, back when he first started practicing law. Uh, Squire Patton Boggs is embroiled in a lawsuit with LexisNexis, uh, I'm assuming about their billings. Uh, well, what they have done now is a, a corporate litigant called Armor Screen Corporation, a, a client of Squire Patton Boggs, has jumped into the lawsuit with a third-party complaint saying, hey, we got claims too, and we should properly be a party that's being heard in this matter. Armor Screen Corp 
has alleged that Squire Patent Boggs, despite receiving a flat rate for legal services, billed more than $100,000 in separate searches with the help of a LexisNexis product called Power Invoice. They state that it was used to construct sham bills, according to this suit in Florida's 15th Judicial Circuit. The lawyer for Armor Screen Corp, Michael Smith, not a Squire Patton Boggs attorney, you can assume, stated, We believe LexisNexis aided and abetted Squire in a breach of fiduciary duty and a fraud against my client. We think the Power Invoice product is a product created and designed in a way that enabled that kind of fraud. Squire's response was that its billing for legal research complies with ABA rules, and they deny the claims Armor Screen is now trying to add. Uh, I gotta say, it, it does not bode well when your defense is, no, we were within the rules. We we were within the rules on this one. It's interesting that they are going against... Uh, not Squire, Patton Boggs. Well, maybe they are. I don't know. I haven't seen the lawsuit. But the lawsuit makes it sound like their claims are primarily against LexisNexis, uh, which, buddy, you said it earlier before stri- before we started recording. Why are they doing that? LexisNexis has deep pockets. Deep pockets! Those sugar daddy jean pockets! Filled with rolls of $100 bills and trips to Cancun with your roommate who you swear is just a friend, right? Oh, absolutely. Oh. They're just a friend. We, we haven't gone any farther than that. But I'll point out, this is the equivalent of having pockets that go all the way down to your socks. You got to reach all the way down to get every last bit of money out of those. So that's the amount of money that we're generally talking about here. So that's why you go after the, the big defendants. In this particular case, I'm not really sure that um, my my understanding of the claim is that um, Squire Patton Boggs um, are subscribed via the Netflix model and they're charging like it's the Blockbuster model, um, if I may grossly oversimplify. And no, 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 gross oversimplification is what we do here. Okay, well, in that case, uh, and they've said technically it's not against the rules and... My understanding is that technically it's not. How about you? What do you think? Well, I think that when we start talking about the rules, it's a perfect time for me to give a general disclaimer I should have given a minute ago. Ding. (laughs) Thank you for leading me like a horse to water to the liability river so I can take a deep, deep sip. Uh, While Boozy's Legal Funhouse is a podcast that is hosted by attorneys, and we are attorneys, we are not your attorneys. Unless, in the case of those of us who accept private clients, you have located us, come into our office, met with us, discussed your case with us, signed an engagement letter after we have agreed to represent you, and paid a retainer of your choice. Or of your choice. Fuck that. No, my choice. Not your choice. I'd never get the goddamn retainer. Of my choice, or Buddy's choice, or any other attorney's choice that is on this podcast. Uh, We are not your attorneys. Nothing that we are going to be discussing here tonight should be construed as legal advice. We talk about general principles of law in an informational, educational, and hopefully entertaining manner. No attorney-client privilege exists. 
no attorney-client relationship is formed. For the love of God, do not disclose anything about pending litigation or any legal matter in a chat, DM, private message, or other form of communication. You're an idiot if you do. And, as always, no matter what you hear tonight, you need to talk to a licensed attorney in your jurisdiction. The law varies widely from place to place, and what we talk about may not be the rule where you live. Please, for the love of God, do not say a fat man who acts like a cartoon badger on the internet told me to do this. It won't hold up in court. That said, let's move on to our next <laughs> news article for the night. This Great one is segue. Yeah, right? Uh, this one, again, comes from April 1st, 2021, the ABA Journal. This is regarding uh, former partner at Paulsonelli, a law firm and uh, really kind of a nationwide law firm, but specifically regarding their Texas branch office. Trey A. Monsoor has filed a lawsuit against his former firm where he was a partner in their bankruptcy division for a number of years, stating that they denied him associate and administrative support, lowered his compensation, de-equitized his partnership, and replaced him with a younger heterosexual woman, all because of his sexual orientation and age. Monsure, who is a gay 58-year-old man and now a partner at Fox Rothschild, has stated that the firm, filled with Midwestern good old boys, uh, had been trying to make itself more attractive to progressive clients and touted a commitment to diversity that Monsoor states is now farcical and a mere pretense. Polsonelli reported in 2019 that 72% of his partners were white heterosexual men, 22% white heterosexual women, less than 2% of its members were LGBTQ, and at most 7% of its partners were among all other minority groups combined, including veterans. While other new partners at the firm would get what he called a red carpet treatment, including at the minimum an assistant, associate attorneys, uh, attorneys assigned to them, as well as paralegal and staff support, Monsoor did not get any of those things and the associate report he support he received was sparse at best. When he was finally assigned an assistant, she was 745 miles away, and he could only communicate with her by email because she was too busy for a phone call. Watch There's source. a legal term for this. I know this one. Um, bullshit. Yeah, bullshit. That's right. Bullshit. There we go. Uh, now, Monsieur has stated that he had a tier one rating. He was one of the better bankruptcy attorneys there. He performed excellently. Uh, in one instance, and this is an interesting one, no one at the firm had told him about the departure of a lawyer working in a substantial capacity on one of his cases. Instead, he learned about it from outside co-counsel on the morning of an important hearing. God. Can you imagine being in that situation? Have you been in that situation? I, I have not. I'm not a partner. <laughs> if, well, if, I was a, if I was a partner, then no, I couldn't have been. Like, I, I have to understand. You, know, you have to understand 
the the law firm model when you come in as an attorney. Uh, you come in and you're a junior associate. You are the lowest of the low. You are a worm who does only the workings of others, most likely briefs and minor court appearances nobody else wants to be messed with. There are senior associates. They are a step below the partners, normally in charge of a couple junior associates reporting directly to a specific partner. Then there are the partners, and the partners are the people with equity in the firm. They get a slice of the action, a piece of the pie in most cases. In some firms, they have what's called a name partner, which means you get no equity, you're a partner in name only. Uh, typically, a very senior associate is what it is. Uh, what Mansoor had done was he came into this firm as an equity partner, as a stakeholder in the firm, and was not given by his other stakeholders any of the support that would be expected. He wasn't given an assistant. He wasn't given paralegals. He wasn't given a secretary. He was given very sparse associate support. And what this is saying is that on the morning of a hearing is when he became aware that an associate who was working on one of his cases was no longer with the firm. When he expressed yeah. concern, his department chair condescendingly asked in an email whether he was able to stay calm. Well, you know those LGBT people always flying off the handle when uh, you leave them high and dry in the middle of litigation. Oh, yeah, you know, I mean, like, yeah, you would expect a straight attorney to keep the cool about them, right? Absolutely. Like, you know, yeah, walk. that has everything to do with who you're attracted yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, who you have sex has a direct impact on the your ability to practice law. Uh, I, I forgot to add with. Who you have sex with. Who you have sex is not a complete sentence. That sounds like something a Neanderthal says when they're asking if you're a virgin. Who you have sex? Um... <laughs> In another strange episode in the fall of 2019, Monsieur's business and personal files were lost when they relocated office spaces, including client files, contracts, and personal files containing his will and power of attorney. But no other lawyers from that office yeah. lost any files. My God, uh, can you imagine losing your will and power of attorney because your office was moved? Oh, yeah. I would be in a panic. That would, you know, like, like, I would hope I remembered who I hated enough to write out of the will. <laughs> like, I, well, that, ever... that changes on a daily basis. You know, I understand how it is. You got to know which one of your kids is your favorite today. Have I, have I ever told you how I do my will? Like, once a year, I pour a glass of whiskey. I sit at the kitchen table. I pull out my will and a red pen. And I'm like, okay, who's pissed me off this year? Um... <laughs> this is why you got to keep this stuff up to date and on hand. You like, can't I, just lose it. I, I give everybody ample warning, too. I'm like, next week I'm rewriting the deal in case anybody wants to ply me with gifts while I'm in a good mood. Um, <laughs> so, so you got that barrister wig okay? Yeah, that, yeah, I did. Okay, good. Now, the cherry on this shit Sunday of poor management of partners comes down to how do you think Monsieur was filed, fired? How do you think they fired him, buddy? Definitely in the way that, with, that gives him the most dignity and agency and an ability to uh, say something to his co-workers and employees. Definitely not a way that just leaves him out in the middle of nowhere with uh, no support. Yeah, they called him and told him he didn't have a job anymore. 
Yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah, they fired they fired him by phone call. Uh, Monsieur has filed an action under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, uh, alleging violation and age discrimination, stating that his firing was in part due to his age, and has also uh, filed a discrimination action on the basis of being LGBTQ. Of course. Uh, Paul Sinelli has stated that the allegations are outrageous. Chase Simmons, chairman and CEO, told Bloomberg Law the firm will vigorously defend itself against these erroneous and defamatory charges. We will do so with the facts, relying primarily on Mr. Mansoor's own words and actions. They will paint a very different picture. Hmm. Well, that's very convincing. It definitely right. sounds like they have a, a, a case, obviously, and they they wouldn't do anything, you know, to, to rob somebody of their dignity. And uh, obviously they have the, their business as a family, you understand. Well, and, and as I say for the first time, because I don't think I've ever said it before, but as I'm going to start saying, when we report these matters, when we're talking about these matters, remember, we are only getting one side of the story. Uh, that's all a complaint is, is one side of the story. There is another side out there that hasn't been told or filed yet. I can't judge the case because I don't have the case. I don't know what evidence is going to come out. For all we know, Mansoor really was fucking around on the clock and lost his job as a result. Or... Bolsonelli could be a bunch of homophobes and ages. I mean, that's that's a possibility too. But what isn't a possibility is uh, Knight v. Trump continuing in front of the Supreme Court. Now, a little bit of background: the uh, the I believe it is the Knight Group. What's it called, buddy? You have the same order up I do, don't you? Uh, yeah. yeah, Knight First Amendment yeah, so- Institute at Columbia <laughs> University. A few years back, uh, Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University had filed a federal lawsuit alleging that Donald Trump, acting in his professional capacity, did not have the ability to ban or block people on Twitter without violating their free speech principles. The Second Circuit uh, upheld a district court opinion stating that's right. Trump could not block people on Twitter from real Donald Trump because he used that account in a government capacity. As we'll talk about later this evening, though, circuit court opinions aren't nationwide effective. So it was appealed up to the Supreme Court of the United States, at which point Joe Biden was elected and both the government and the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University sort of said, well, seems like the matter's moot now because Trump's no longer a government official. The Supreme Court today agreed with that statement, issuing uh, an opinion that granted the writ of certiorari, vacated the judgment of the Second Circuit, and remanded it back down to the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit with instructions to dismiss the case as moot. Now, dismissing a case as moot is simply a legal way of saying, well, it don't matter no more. It don't matter no more because it's done with. Uh, right. And it's it's especially important because it doesn't set precedent, which in this case would be pretty darn important, as we'll get into here. Right. And the thing is, is that's not uncommon, that type of ruling. We're going to grant the writ, 
but we're going to say it doesn't matter anymore. So we're going to vacate the judgment below as if it never happened. And we're going to send it back to the Second Circuit and say you need to dismiss the matter completely as moot. He's not president, he's not a government official, and he's banned from Twitter. So none of this matters. That would be typically all you would expect to see in that sort of order. Just those, that, that you know, four or five lines. Well, that'd be typically what you would expect to see. But Clarence Thomas wrote a, like, 10 to 12 page concurring opinion on all the reasons why he thinks that is correct. And you always have to sit up and take notice when there is a simple thing like this, uh, vacating, remanding, dismissing as moot with a grant of a writ, with a long concurring opinion because it can telegraph the thoughts of the judges if these matters become squarely uh, in front of them again and the situations under which they would hear this. Thomas scares me a little on this uh, because he goes into a rather long discussion of whether or not Twitter is a public accommodation or a common carrier and therefore has their ability to act under the First Amendment uh, abrogated on that and whether they can be barred from banning people or blocking people or removing tweets or things like that under the First Amendment as a public accommodation and as a common carrier. Uh, as he says, if part of the problem is private, concentrated control over online content and platforms available to the public, then part of the solution may be found in doctrines that limit the right of a private company to exclude. Historically, at least two legal documents limited a company's right to exclude. One is the common carrier requirements. The other uh, goes into matters of public interest and public accommodation, almost equating Twitter to, while being a private entity, one that should not be able to exercise all of its uh, constitutional rights under the First Amendment. Uh, it goes on to state and I'm just reading highlights here. Internet platforms, of course, have their own First Amendment interests, but regulations that might affect speech are valid if they would have been permissible at the time of the founding. Talking about the founding of the country. There is a fair argument that some digital platforms are sufficiently akin to common carriers or places of accommodation to be regulated in this manner. The opinion goes on rather at length and is a good read for legal history, uh, but at the same time opens up the door of when should we take a look at whether the government has a right to dictate to Twitter uh, or to Facebook or to others that they cannot take actions that would amount to limiting free speech. When can the government step in and abrogate their First Amendment rights to require them to do certain things in this trade-off of allowing them to operate otherwise freely. Uh, the Second Circuit, and we're going to 
read this. The Second Circuit feared that then-President Trump cut off speech by using features that Twitter made available to him. But if the aim is to ensure that speech is not smothered, then the more glaring concern must perforce be the dominant digital platforms themselves. As Twitter made clear, the right to cut off speech lies most powerfully in the hands of private digital platforms. The extent to which that power matters for the purposes of the First Amendment and the extent to which that power could lawfully be modified raise interesting and important questions. This petition, unfortunately, affords us no opportunity to confront them. It terrifies me. First, when Clarence Thomas feels the need to speak about fucking anything. Second, when he refers to something as an interesting and important question. Yeah, that should always set your antenna tingling there. If anybody with that amount of power finds something interesting, then, I don't know, that, uh, it's a... I'm not wording right here. If they find something interesting, it's because it's a subject on which they feel like they can flex. And yeah. that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, like, things you don't want to hear from a lawyer, a judge, or a doctor. Hmm. Well, that's an interesting situation. Let's look at it. Right. Like, nothing good comes after that fucking statement. And nope. I think I think one of the worrisome things for me is... The fact that Thomas is opening the door right now. He, he's saying, we're not going to consider this case. It doesn't raise the issues I think are important. But if you put an issue in front of me that raises that, if a case comes up to me that raises it, I'll vote to hear it. I, wa- I want to hear about whether or not we should be able to limit a digital private platform's ability to block or ban or regulate speech. I want to hear about that. I, I want to decide that. I want to treat them like Ma Bell as a common carrier and who they can and can't exclude service to and on what grounds. I want to treat them like the Shoney's restaurant and tell them who they can and can't exclude and on what grounds. And it's interesting to see Thomas do this because um, didn't Thomas, wasn't he one of the people who was in support of the, uh, the masterpiece cake shop opinion? If I remember correctly, yes. I mean, I need to obviously go to the tapes and make sure. But uh, <laughs> like, yeah, wait, I, you, I, you have tapes. <laughs> I don't. I don't even have tapes. <laughs> metaphorically. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I just said, like, you have tapes, motherfucker. <laughs> That's which actually you can show brings, them to you sometime. Actually, brings up a good question for tonight because what got us onto this topic tonight is yesterday I woke up. And somebody was wrong on the internet. Good Uh, God! uh, There was somebody out there who had cited to the proposition that Donald Trump, that it was now federal law that Donald Trump could not block people, or a government official could not block people on the internet, and they actually cited tonight v. Trump as that. And I had to step in and say, Ned, that's, you're not really correctly stating the situation because Knight v. Trump, while pending writ, uh, while a writ has been requested from the Supreme Court, a writ being just the court saying, yeah, we'll hear it, uh, was a Second Circuit opinion and has no broad applicability outside of the Second Circuit. 
Uh, and yeah, of course they were like, "Oh yeah, you're right." And I'm like, "Yeah," and it stayed. You're fucking lame, buddy. But anyways, uh, and it brought up yeah, a over good... over in the Eleventh Circuit where I am. We don't care what the Second Circuit does. We don't have to listen to them. Right. I mean, like you should, but you well, you, you don't. And that that actually we brought don't up have a, to a good point on how people don't really understand how all of that works. They don't really understand how uh the the interplay of the federal law and preemption and court precedent and binding be persuasive and influential decisions and things like that too often which is what we're getting into tonight uh or whenever you're listening to this really uh you first have to grasp on this when we talk about preemption when we talk about the supremacy of laws what we're really talking about, uh, at least when it comes to actual law, written law, is constitutional in nature. We're talking about Article 6 of the United States Constitution, uh, which I'll post a link to it in the show notes. But the important part is Article 6, Clause 2, which reads, This Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, or which shall be made, under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding and that is a very fancy way to espouse a very simple principle the principle being the federal laws control there is an order to our laws to which laws are enforced which laws are greater than others and generally the order can be the constitution the actual codified laws treaties, administrative regulations from federal bodies, state constitutions, state laws, and state or local regulations or ordinances. And that's a descending order of power. The U.S. Constitution is referred to as the supreme law of the land because in that document, we say it is the supreme law of the land. But you have to remember, there's a couple things about the Constitution. We do not have a proscriptive Constitution. We don't have one that says, this is what you can do, to the most part. It's mainly restrictive. It's restrictive because it goes out there, and it says, these are the powers we give to Congress. These are the powers we give to the President. These are the powers we give to the Judiciary. This is how that's going to be interpreted. Then we have the amendments to the Constitution that go out there. And one of those amendments is, very simply, the Tenth Amendment uh, of the United States Constitution, which I thought I had up, but I apparently don't, but basically says anything not explicitly reserved to it. Anything not placed into the power of the United States government is reserved to the states. The states have that power. Uh, I mean, throughout, you have to understand that because it means Congress, the federal government, it only has as much authority as the Constitution gives it. So I hear you shouting out there, what happens if the laws conflict what happens if a state makes a law and the federal government makes a law 
about the same thing. Buddy, what happens? Oh, um, I believe they flip a coin. No. <laughs> no. Like, I, I'd be down if they did sometimes, but no, not general. The base assumption is that unless it is otherwise stated, uh, the states will retain any power not granted to the federal government. But where there is that conflict, where a federal law and a state law touch on the same thing, the same area, we have to go through what's called a preemption thing. Now, it's not always clear when the two are touching on that. Uh, for instance, and we'll, we could talk about this for days, but the federal government can claim commerce clause powers over many different activities. But the states are still going to retain the power to regulate that activity within the state. And that's called a concurrent power. Both the federal government and the state have power over the same class of activities. Now, you were chomping at the bit to say something when I said commerce clause. <laughs> yes, I did. Um, wow, this could, this could be an entire semester worth of classes, so I'll, I'll try and break it down to two or three sentences. But um, the Commerce Clause is one of the explicit powers that's granted to Congress, but it's been it's been inferred to include a lot of different powers that have gone exponentially greater than probably the founders would have imagined. But since they're dead and, you know, we're living in a different society than they did, I'm questioning whether that matters. That's a, <laughs> a philosophical point. I love now, I love that. That's a philosophical point. They're dead. Fuck them. Um... Well, <laughs> no, you can't do that. That's illegal. But it's a state law. <laughs> so anyway, what... um, where was I? I, I have oh, no yes. clue. <laughs> the the Commerce Clause. Um, so the federal government is able to regulate interstate commerce, but not commerce within the states and exclusively within that state, unless... Um, so I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> and, but we actually, we have a whole thing on the Commerce Clause later. That's that's mm. wonderful that you're bringing it up right now because it's important to understand that. Because one of the things you have to keep in mind, and, and we'll be touching on it, is that the federal government has to have the power to act in an area of law. So if they passed a law tomorrow saying you can't wear blue hats... There's a pretty strong question on whether or not the United States government has any constitutional power to make that order. Where would they derive the power for that law from? Now, they're going to argue the Commerce Clause, which could, could be and probably will at some point be a show in and of itself. But do they really have it? And if they don't have the power, then their law is of no effect. It is not constitutional and will likely be struck down upon challenge. That is important to keep in mind, because when we talk about preemption, that's the very first thing we're talking about. A federal law only preempts if it is a valid exercise of the Congress's power. Otherwise, it is not a constitutional law and not a valid exercise of it. And all preemption is, is who controls? Who do we listen to? You got mom on one hand, you got dad on the other. Who's the bigger authority? Is it Mama Fed or Daddy State? And by the way, Daddy State... is not State, a situation where you wind up with two Christmases. Yeah. If they conflict, one of them is going to wind up overruling the other. Well, we, we tried that. We, we tried the two Christmases thing. Didn't work out. A lot of Didn't people died. <laughs> um, 
So in that situation, when you have two laws that overlap, a federal law and a state law that overlap, we do a preemption analysis. And the standard touchstone for a preemption analysis right now, and it will change as, as the law evolves, is currently a 2008 Supreme Court case called Altria Group v. Good. Now, in this case, the court stated that where a preemption clause of a law is susceptible to more than one plausible reading, that reading that disfavors preemption, disfavors overruling the state law, is the one that should generally be accepted. So, if the state says you can't wear a blue hat on Sundays, and the feds say you can't wear a blue hat, is the preemption analysis going to find that the federal law controls? Probably not, because they can operate together, and the reading plainly doesn't conflict between the two. If the reading says the state law can remain in effect, the state law remains in effect. It's heavily weighted, in theory, towards favoring the sovereignty of the states, which brings us to another thing you have to understand in any constitutional or preemption discussion whatsoever, and that is the concept of separate sovereigns. Buddy, what is the concept of separate sovereigns? Basically, what it boils down to is that every state is its own separate sovereign within its own territory. Um, and technically, I guess you could view the, I'm probably butchering the terminology here, but you could view the federal government as sovereign over the union as a whole, but um, not each individual state. Right. It is, as Buddy got at there, the concept that every state in and of itself is its own government. And while they are all beholden to one larger government, in a sense, the federal government, each is treated as a separate power as to themselves. Now, obviously, we tried that uh, well before the United States was formed with the Articles of Confederation, and it fell apart because... The concept of separate sovereigns had no allegiance, no overwhelming authority or precedence, no requirement that they adhere to the federal standards. Uh, here the honor system does not work. Right. This we know. So when they put it into the Constitution, the concept is we will have a strong federal government, but the states where the federal government does not apply will be free to act in and of themselves. One of those areas, for instance, where the federal government is the only one allowed to act, relations with foreign nations. The separate states, because of the Constitution, have no power to enter into treaties or negotiations with foreign nations on their own. Only the federal government has that power as the singular representative of the shared sovereignty of all the states. Now, the Touchstones uh, standard from Altria evolved a year later in 2009 in a SCOTUS case called Waithley uh, v. Levine, which really, it didn't evolve, it's been here, it's just a really good expression of it, and I encourage you to read it, and set out the two cornerstones that we look at when we look at a preemption analysis. The first was, was preemption intended? The second is, have states traditionally occupied the area? And what do those mean? When we try to interpret a law, 
and what it means. One of the ways we do that is we look at congressional intent, the legislative intent present in the record, the plain meaning of the statute, the arguments of the statute, and things like that. And the first and that's part something of... that, um, sorry, I'm just going to no, jump go in ahead. real quick. A lot of people don't actually know. Um, when we say congressional intent, we're not just trying to infer what they were thinking. In a lot of cases, they actually do wind up recording these arguments that they have back and forth. It's a matter of congressional records. So we know what they were thinking. They told right. us. If you remember last week's episode, when we uh, talked about the First Amendment and the history of it, one of the issues is they didn't keep the records. There was no argument. There was no discussion about the wording. So we couldn't adequately say what it was. At that point in time, we couldn't say, you know, oh, no, when they struck this word, they meant that when they struck that word, they meant this because there was no back and forth between them. All we had were the words on it. And there's actually a, something out there. It's called the congressional record. It keeps those arguments. It keeps those discussions. It's like a court stenographer of congressional arguments specifically for this purpose. So we can look back at those records and know what the intent was behind it when they formed these things. So that's the first thing. Was preemption the intent of Congress? Second part is, have the states traditionally occupied those areas? A good example of that would be criminal law within a state boundary. Traditionally, has it been the role of the federal government to arrest and prosecute people for crimes in Illinois? Or has it been the role of Illinois to do that? Who gets to make that law traditionally? Well, the... if we're discussing Illinois, the IRS, they're going to get out of the <laughs> The base assumption is that unless it is clearly intended otherwise, a law should not displace a state law power in a zone that is traditionally occupied solely by the state. But it raises the question of what happens if a law directly conflicts. Let's go back to our uh, our blue hat for a moment. Say Illinois passes a law saying everybody must wear a blue hat. And then the federal government passes a law saying it is a felony to wear a blue hat. Which law controls uh, oh I, I wasn't sure if you were asking rhetorically or not <laughs> um the federal law and why is that buddy um well because it's, it's impossible to actually comply with both the state and the federal law and where they contradict the federal law controls absolutely in Altria group scotus explained that two ways uh, you can determine whether or not one law preempts another is if it's expressly stated by the act of Congress or it is clear through the structure or language that the law is intended to preempt other laws. Express preemption would be something like, oh, well, uh, we intend for this law to control no matter what over any other state law. The second, structure and language that is an implied preemption. They're not saying we preempt it, but it is clear from how the law is going to operate 
that it is implied to preempt. And in implied preemption, we get into two different areas, conflict or field. A conflict preemption means that there is an actual conflict in many times, like we just heard about. The blue hat. One says you must, one says you can't. You cannot comply with both. Assuming that both are valid laws, assuming that Congress has the power to outlaw the wearing of blue hats nationwide as a base assumption, assuming that the federal law would control because you can't obey both at the same time. And it's more or less a family court judge asking, who do you want to live with, mommy fed or daddy state, and then saying, psych, you can't go live with daddy state. I've already decided it's mommy fed. The federal law will always control in a situation of direct conflict. Now, now it's at this point, I'd like to throw in a slight monkey wrench just for people to consider because we are not going to go into it at this point. But, um, for example, legalization of cannabis uh, has been legalized or at least decriminalized in a number of states. However, the federal law also has that on the books as a, as a criminal offense. So, uh, at this point, you know, there are attorneys whose jobs are specifically to sort out conflicts in this particular I, case. I know so, a couple of them. I know a couple mm-hmm. of them. I I know a couple cannabis attorneys. Uh, they spend almost all their time at the federal courthouse right now. And in almost every situation, it is they purchased it within the state. It was grown within the state. It was sold within the state. It has not gone out of the state. You have no power here in those situations, which brings up an interesting question. What is actually outlawed on the drugs things? If you read that act, It's not mere possession. It's always trafficking or possession with intent to sell of a certain scheduled narcotic or possession on federal lands, places where Congress unquestionably has that authority and would not be stepping into an area where they uh, otherwise would not be allowed. The second type of implied conflict preemption is, uh, is obstacle preemption. Now, obstacle preemption is, okay, no actual conflict exists. You can technically obey both of the laws at the same time. However, your state law makes it really hard to comply with our federal law. Therefore, our federal law controls. An example of this. Let's say there is a state that has said uh, the practicing in front of the patent office is the unauthorized practice of law and is a criminal offense. But the patent office says, we don't technically require you to be barred in any state to be admitted to practice before us. So Bob goes out, and he's authorized to be a patent agent and represent people in front of the patent board, and he lives in this unnamed state, and they arrest him for unauthorized practice of law. What happens? Well, um, 
checking my notes here. <laughs> now, um, oh, you're cheating. In the event, <laughs> yeah, I'm cheating. Uh, no, in an event like this where the um, where the state law makes it impossible to com- or extremely difficult to comply with the federal law, again, the federal law controls. So, um, it would be, I guess, uh, the term would be implied that states cannot issue rest- um, more restrictive regulations in this case there are more restrictive laws and regulations than the federal government does right um, and that's actually a real case that is the 1963 supreme court case sperry v florida sperry being a person who was uh, registered to act as a patent agent uh in front of the united states patent and trade office uh and florida had determined that since he was not licensed there Doing that in the state of Florida was the unauthorized practice of law, and SCOTUS stepped in and said, no, the patent office gets to determine who's allowed to practice in front of the patent office. You don't, Florida. You know, you can tell him he can't practice law in any other area, but you don't get to tell him he can't practice in front of the patent board because he is a registered patent officer. He is a patent agent. So that, that's a very good example of that. And as Buddy just kind of pointed out, though, in that specific case, does it mean that Florida cannot determine who's authorized to practice law? Of course not. It just means they can't punish people for doing something the federal government says they can do in that area. And it's an important concept to remember. The states can give you, under preemption doctrines, more protection but they can't take away the protection the federal law already gives you. If the federal law says you can dance naked in the streets on Sundays, a state cannot come back and say, no, you, can, you cannot dance naked in the streets on Sundays. That's a direct conflict. The states can't take away a right the federal government has given to you. However, the states could expand that right. The states could say, you can dance naked on in the streets from 9 a.m. Saturday to midnight on Monday. That is expanding a right you already have under the federal law. No preemption applies. And where preemption does apply, it only applies to the extent necessary to force adherence to the federal law. As in the Sperry case, like we just talked about, it could say, it did say, Florida, you can authorize people to practice law and charge them with unauthorized practice of law, but you can't when we control the determination. Outside of that, you're fine. The only part we're preempting is that one part at this point in time. Outside of that, what other types of preemption are there implied? Well, and this is a fun one. We should all know it. It's something called field preemption. Now, field preemption is a little different because field preemption doesn't actually require any actual conflict. It doesn't require any obstacle to the enforcement of the federal law. It's merely existing within the same field. It would be, you know... Daddy trying to take on the role of mommy, even if it helps mommy or could ostensibly help mommy, and mommy doesn't like it. Mommy's pissed. Mommy fed wants you out of their realm. It is the stay in your fucking lane of law. 
All right. Uh, a field preemption is just simply the federal government saying, we have the sole authority in this field. You have no right to come into this. For example, in 1947's Rice v. Santa Fe Elevator Corp., the Supreme Court of the United States determined that where a scheme of federal regulation is so pervasive as to make reasonable the inference that Congress has left no room for the states to supplement it, or where it touches a field in which the federal interest is so dominant that the federal system will be assumed to preclude enforcement of state laws on the same subject. The federal government and its laws completely occupy the field and exclude the states. A good example of this? Labor relations. The NLRA sets forth standards for labor relations nationwide that all employers within the scope of it must adhere to. And the states cannot go in and make their own labor relations laws that would touch upon that same area because the regulation is so pervasive that it doesn't. Another one, a fairly recent example, immigration. In 2012, Arizona went to the Supreme Court in Arizona v. United States about a Senate bill that we all sort of remember. Arizona had said that its officers were now empowered to enforce federal immigration laws and should determine the immigration status of anyone they stop within the state of Arizona. Okay, uh, which basic, is absolutely not in their lane. Yeah, uh, and penalizing on the state level anybody who shelters, hires, or transports undocumented peoples. When this went in front of SCOTUS, SCOTUS said, "Stay in your fucking lane." Major portions of that bill were struck down. Because the wording of the Constitution, which empowered Congress to establish a uniform rule of naturalization, combined with the constitutional standards that the federal government was the only government with the power to handle relations with foreign powers and peoples, vested the sole ability to enforce, determine, or otherwise manage immigration and immigration laws in the United States, and the states were completely precluded from attempting to do the same on their own. This all comes back to that traditional test. Does the government occupy that field? Buddy? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, It was a question. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) yes Uh, yeah as far as immigration obviously the federal government totally occupies that field i mean i don't see that there's a question there as i spoke about back at the beginning of all this and buddy and i spoke on it for a while the constitution is the guiding stone though for any analysis of preemption to take place and to be valid 
it has to be based in the actual authority of the federal government. And where the federal government derives that authority from is the supreme law of the land, the United States Constitution, which, as we discussed, is one that limits the powers of Congress, specifically to those enumerated directly in the Constitution. Everything else is supposedly reserved to the states, but this is important because the Constitution is actually pretty sparse on what those powers are. And yeah, you could read the Constitution while sitting on the job, and that's the basis of our entire federal government. That's not a lot to work with. And as a result, courts have come in, and they've interpreted over time, to expand the powers in the Constitution into a lot of areas that may not have previously been included or intended. We talked about the Commerce Clause earlier. You'll find that Article 1, Section 8, and it states that the Congress has the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian because the Founding Fathers were not politically correct in any way, shape, or form. And while that seems like a very straightforward statement, it has been interpreted to restrict actions by the states and approve a federal government action in the interest of regulation. Uh, for instance, a state law that discriminates against or excessively burdens interstate commerce can be struck down by congressional power under something we call the Dormant Commerce Clause, being a dormant power in Congress that wasn't expressed in the Constitution, but we're now saying we have. As a matter of fact, it's actually a fairly fun guess if you're thinking about a specific law right now. And thinking, how do they have the power to do that if it's not mentioned in the uh, Constitution or an amendment? The answer more than likely is the Dormant Commerce Clause. <laughs> uh, you know, what I said, the strike down, let me ask. Let's say Massachusetts decides it, it wants to promote its dairy economy, its, its local dairy economy. So it says, you know what? Uh, dairy sales from producers in our state, from dairy farmers in our state, have a 5% tax, but if it comes in from out of state, we're going to tax it at 6%. Oh, well, that sounds perfectly reasonable. That's absolutely not. West Lynn Creamery, Inc. v. Healy, SCOTUS, 1994, said that that was a violation of the Commerce Clause because it disparately treated other people outside of the state. If the activity is solely intrastate, if it's only inside the boundaries of the state, Congress would not have any power. That's where we get back to the drug laws. If the weed is grown in the state, if it is sold in the state, if it is used and possessed only in the state... Congress has no power under the Commerce Clause to regulate it. But the moment it comes in from out of state, or the moment that you try to disper disparately affect out-of-state people for legal matters coming in, that's where the Commerce Clause comes into play. So, while the Commerce Clause can be, and will likely be, an episode in and of itself here on the Legal Funhouse, the important takeaway is that it can be heavily interpreted and the Constitution itself, by courts and arguments, can be twisted because of the vagaries of the language and the jurisprudence to support almost anything 
if the court is agreeable enough to that position. Which brings us to the final part, or really the second part. And that is, what are the levels of applicability of court decisions? Buddy, yes, if, sir. The, if the Supreme Court of the United States is interpreting a law in Alabama and they say, nope, that goes against the Alabama Constitution, not the U.S. Constitution and not a federal law, would an Alabama court have to listen to them? I'm trying to, I have my answer, but now I'm thinking of buts. Um, Remember, it's a close. Yeah, absolutely. Not at all. In in that matter. Yeah. Not at all. You're right. Yeah. The Alabama Supreme Court, given that it's interpretation of solely their own laws, dealing solely within their own state, they're the supreme sovereign in that matter. And the U.S. Supreme Court has nothing to do with them. Correct. Which brings up a very important point right now. When we talk about the levels of authority in courts, you have to understand there are, for all intents and purposes, two court systems, the federal court and the state court, and they don't necessarily intermix. Okay? The Supreme Court of the United States ruling solely on an issue of state law with no federal question would have no precedential weight. They have no authority in that matter. None whatsoever. The Supreme Court of the United States is the arbiter of all federal questions, not state law questions. The arbiter of a state law question, the final authority on a pure question of state law with no federal question whatsoever, a federal question being one that impacts in some way on the Constitution, on federal regulations, on the code uh, of the the United States Code, our, our laws, our treaties, If it has no federal question, a federal court has no presidential authority. The only presidential authority is that state. Understanding that, you also need to understand federal question jurisdiction is generally necessary for a federal court to hear a matter. Now, that's not exactly true. Because there is something called diversity jurisdiction. And that would be where it's a state law question, but because the defendants and the plaintiffs are from different jurisdictions and it's over a set amount of money, which does change over time, uh, a United States District Court has been granted the authority to hear the matter. However, if it's purely a state law question under diversity jurisdiction and it gets appealed, The law that's applying isn't federal law. It's state law in front of the district court, in front of the appeals court, in front of every court that's hearing that matter. It's a state law question, and the final arbiter of a state law question is, of course, the state court that is applying that law. So, let me ask, buddy. If uh, a United States district court is sitting in diversity, on a state law claim. Yes. And it renders an opinion. What precedential weight is given to that opinion by the state courts themselves? 
And to explain that before you answer, I should explain <clears throat> what presidential weight is. There are two forms of presidential weight. There is binding authority, also known as mandatory authority, and that is this court said this, therefore you must agree with them. You don't have a choice in the matter. Unless they overrule themselves, that is the law now. And then there's persuasive authority, which is this court said this, but you are absolutely free to decide differently. We just think that they had really good reasoning. So if a United States District Court is sitting, say, in diversity on a, on a car accident claim and grants summary judgment on the basis of state law and a case with identical facts is pending in front of a trial court of that state, and somebody says, well, you got to hold this way because this, the United States District Court just said it. Does the state court have to follow that? Uh, no, that'd be, um, um, <laughs> sorry, excuse me. <coughs> sorry. No, that wouldn't be binding. That would be, um, uh, sorry, just blanking on the word right now. Persuasive. <laughs> Thank you. Can you The word you're out? thinking of is persuasive. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, sorry. I, I've had a long, long Easter weekend. I just blanked <laughs> on the word. So, thank you. I well, swear, let, I am an attorney in real life. Let, let me let me be clear. Here is your order of authority: the Supreme Court of the United States, when sitting on a federal question, always is, binding is always binding upon the lower federal courts, the circuit courts of appeal, the United States district courts, and on any federal question which could include life or liberty interests for the state courts because they are determining state uh, federal law. And as we discussed earlier, the whole reason for that preemption discussion was so that you could understand the very basic concept, federal law rules supreme when there's two laws that impact the same area. Okay. What about a federal circuit court? Who are they binding on? Well, the federal circuit courts are, they're not binding on anybody really. No, they Dude. are. They are the well, federal I mean, within... circuit. Yeah, the federal circuit courts are binding on the district courts within that circuit. They are binding on the United States district courts within that circuit. Oh, I'm sorry. I I thought I heard district courts. Who are they? No, uh, no, the district courts aren't binding on fucking anybody. District courts aren't even binding on was... themselves. Yeah, right. like. Like you can get That's two what judges. I was thinking. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can get two judges in the same district and say, "Yeah, Judge Bob argued it this way, but you're Judge Tom, and we think you're smarter than him." Um, so, right? No. I, yes. What you're saying? Um, circuit courts are binding on the district courts underneath them. Yes. And the state supreme courts. Who are they binding on? Will they be binding on the um, the states, uh, the state courts, and the states? Um, we all have different terminology for this. So, uh, so superior courts, state courts, court of appeals, any lesser courts underneath the Supreme Court. And uh, courts of appeals within a state that if they had, because some states have intermediate courts of appeals. I think most of them do now. Who are they yeah, binding most on? most of them do. Well, they're binding on all of the courts beneath them in their district. Well, are all states divided into districts? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. You're right. Uh, Louisiana is divided up into parishes. Those weirdos. Well, not only that, but not all states. Some states are. Some states have the appeals for the blank judicial district, and they have separate courts of appeals for that. A, a lot of them don't, though. A lot of them have one intermediate appeal court, and the Supreme Court of it, and yeah. that intermediate court will be binding on all state 
all courts within that state. And that's not even getting into things like uh, Pennsylvania's fucked up system of the Superior Court and the Commonwealth Court, where the Commonwealth Court's not binding on anybody but the Commonwealth Court, and the Superior Court's not binding on anybody but the Superior Court. Yeah, we've got semi-parallel Superior Courts and State Courts that they don't cover the same material all the time. It's a little bit of a weird Venn diagram with them. So, so what a little are we bit get- more than we're getting into. What are we getting into here? Really, it's to understand, to help you understand. That's why we did the whole preemption thing on how these courts work. All right. Supreme Court of the United States, binding on all federal courts when sitting in federal question jurisdiction. So a question that derives from federal law, the Constitution has its basis in federal law or a fundamental right. Supreme Court binding on everybody. uh, The appellate courts, the United States Circuit Court of Appeals, binding on all United States district courts within that circuit. District courts are binding on nobody. Uh, They're not even binding on themselves if the parties are different. State Supreme Courts are binding on all courts within that state. State appellate courts are binding on all all courts within that appellate jurisdiction, sometimes the entirety of the state, unless overruled. And state trial courts are not binding on themselves at all. Is a United States District Court sitting on a federal question binding over a state court? More than likely. It's really more of a persuasive authority, but if it's a federal question, more than likely... And in all other circumstances, what you're really saying is, we think this court over here had a really good idea. And we would like you to consider their reasoning. And then they go out and they argue the other side. Now, I'd like to throw history into these. And I'm going to do an entire episode on this one because I love this piece of history. But there was, in the early 19th century, something in Kentucky called the Old Court, New Court situation. Have you ever heard of this, buddy? No, this is news to me. Oh, this is this is a nightmare. It it, it is just a pure out nightmare. Kentucky had basically, uh, when the financial situation got really bad in the early eighteen hundreds, uh, elected something called the Debt Relief Party, and the Debt Relief Party had decided that they were going to basically get rid of a bunch of debts by invalidating certain notes and replevin laws. So. When the courts had to choose between accepting money and payment for debts or waiting long times uh, to complete debts, they found that the Replevin Law, which was the law saying, you got to give me what I'm owed, uh, violated state and federal constitutions. At the end, at that time, the highest court in Kentucky was the Kentucky Court of Appeals. This was 1823. Shortly thereafter, Uh, The Debt Relief Party, having been stymied by the the uh, (laughs) the attempts of that and and by the court there, uh, had a a, uh, election electing a General uh, Joseph Desha. Uh, Desha then basically reduced the salaries of the Court of Appeals and established a new court in Kentucky, a new supreme appellate authority in Kentucky. However, it's Kentucky and nothing's easy. So the old court refused to recognize the authority of the new court. 
And, oh my god. Of course for, they did. For a period of about four years, Kentucky had two what is in effect Supreme Courts operating on different tracks. They wouldn't hand over uh, the records to the new court. The old court didn't hand over the records to the new court. So the clerk of the new court got an armed party together and raided the offices of the old court to steal the court records. Um, Kid, I have several questions. I doubt any of them have good answers. Oh, no, it so gets, I'll just it let gets them better. Pass. In 1825, Kentucky was on the verge of an internal civil war as a result of having two separate tracks of courts sitting there, the old court and the new court. What this is up, why you established the pecking order, people. <laughs> what ended up happening... Uh, was in 1825, a bunch of old court supporters got back into power. In 1826, the economy began to strengthen in Kentucky. Uh, the old court used that to augment the party. The new court was dissolved. It did end peacefully. But during that time, the new court had heard 77 cases and issued opinions as a supreme appellate authority in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. So we have these 77 opinions interpreting state law hanging out there for years. And what do you follow? If the old court, which, because it was mainly a partisan issue, uh, held completely differently from the new court, which court do you cite? Both arguably, were legally instituted courts at the time. So if the opinions diverge, who resolves the issue? Oh, well, two court opinions diverge in the Yellow Woods, and I I took the one less traveled by. Uh, It has made all the difference. Oh, my God, I have no idea what you would do in that situation. Well, Kentucky figured it out. Oh, Uh, good. That's the sentence you don't hear that often. 1827, the courts merged. The 77 opinions were taken out. Kentucky figured it out in 1935. Um, (laughs) Over a hundred years later. Okay, I I did hear you right then. Okay. (laughs) And Smith, the Overstreet's administrator of the Kentucky Court of Appeals, which was up until 1976 the supreme judicial authority in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, uh, heard a complaint uh, regarding uh, somebody who was killed in a car accident and the collection of debts and judgments owed to them and actually stated... uh, that let me find it real quick uh that uh yeah the admit the previous adjudications in the so-called supreme court uh referring to the new court and all of our decisions only five of the decisions of that court have been cited and perhaps inadvertently uh cases reported in that one the, the the reporter for that are not and have never been authority in kentucky hmm so Kentucky figured it out, but Kentucky figured it out by looking at it and saying, yeah, we can pretty much invalidate all of the new court shit because we've never relied on it. Like if they had relied on it, though, could you imagine the clusterfuck? 
God, yes, I absolutely could. It, it would have been such a southern thing to do. And I say that living in Georgia, so I get it. Sometimes you have overthrows of government, these things happen. <laughs> Sometimes you have the government overthrow it, it happens. Things, shit happens. <laughs> so that said, uh, I hope that that adequately clears things up a little bit when it comes to the preemption. I know we were rambling tonight. Uh, but I hope it adequately clears things up a bit when it comes to the preemption doctrine and the authority levels of the courts in the United States. Uh, and as we do with every episode, it is time to turn to questions from our users uh, over on the Patreon channel. Uh, we only have, really, one or two tonight, uh, buddy. Uh, the first one, will you be talking about circuit splits, how they happen, and how they are resolved? Uh, very simply. A circuit split is, you know how we said a moment ago, a circuit court sitting in federal question jurisdiction is only binding precedent on the lower federal courts and the state courts answering that same federal question within that jurisdiction. So, it's not binding. It can be persuasive, but it's not binding on all the other circuits. Now, there's like, how many circuits do we have now? Uh, let's see, I'm in 11, so at least yeah. that many. <laughs> yeah, I think we have 11 um, circuits now. Uh, so like something we should know, but... Yeah, it, just, it really does. Like, it, you, never, you never think about it until... Like, like I, I know, ever I know the know ones what. I practice in front of. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> so, say the 4th Circuit decides one way, the 5th Circuit decides another way. That's called a circuit split. You can have the same law and two different circuits interpret it different ways. When circuits uh, thirteen, split, by the way, thirteen. When circuit there splits occur, uh, <clears throat> what'll happen is generally one circuit will pick a side every for every subsequent thing. One circuit, they all if the fourth holds this way and the fifth holds this way, the sixth may go. Eh, we're going to consider the fifth. We're going to consider the fourth. We think the fifth's better, and they're going to go over on that. And you'll get a bunch of different circuits lined up on a circuit split. And when an issue on a circuit split becomes large enough. Uh, eventually, the Supreme Court of the United States, which never has to hear an appeal, they choose to hear appeals, uh, will grant the writ of certiorari and hear the matter and resolve the circuit split by saying, okay, you motherfucker. I mean, it's like mom coming in, smacking the upside of the head and going, bam, get along. Uh, uh, you, know, you have such a vivid imagery. <laughs> uh, and basically... So, I gotta meet your parents at some point. Yeah, yeah, that's... Like, like the Supreme Court of the United States comes in and like an abusive parent smacks you upside the head and says, stop arguing, uh, and tells you how it's going to be. A slippery stallion has asked for the different circuit courts. Why? Doesn't this just mean there's even more inconsistency between states and regions? There is a very good answer for that, believe it or not. Uh, when the United States was founded, we did not always have nine Supreme Court justices. Uh, our Supreme Court justices also did something called riding the circuit. And then they would meet in Washington every year uh, and hear the, the massive cases. But when they rode the circuit, they were sitting as the chief judge of each of the appellate circuits. So they would actually go out and during a good portion of the year, ride the circuit around to the jurisdictions, to the states and stuff in their circuit and hear cases there. 
and then would go to Washington and hear the appeals and the original jurisdiction matters in front of the Supreme Court of the United States. So for a long period of time, we tied the number of Supreme Court justices to the number of circuits. That's why we have the numbers of Supreme Court justices we have. Now, the last time it was updated uh, was when we only had nine circuits. We've now added uh, four or four. Yeah, four more. The Federal Circuit, D.C., and then, yeah. Uh, we've now added four more to it. Why do we have those circuits? Because otherwise we have one massive appellate court for the entire nation. And if you think it's unwieldy to have circuit splits that are then being resolved in front of a higher court, uh, could you imagine if every appeal on every level, in every state, on every federal question, went to the Supreme Court? Ooh, I'm taking a pensive pause just thinking about that. Like Nothing way, would get done. Yeah, the reason we have the Ritter Rory right now is the Supreme Court already has a massive docket of requests. And Ritter Rory mm-hmm. says, we will consider hearing your case, and if we grant your writ, we will hear your case. In front of the circuit courts, you don't ask for a writ. You just get a right of appeal. As long as you have grounds for appeal, you get to appeal. You don't have to ask them for permission to appeal first. You get to appeal it up to them, and they issue a decision. Uh, Now, you can be denied things like an in banc hearing, which is the whole circuit court sitting in and hearing instead of just the three-judge panel. But if you want to appeal up to the Supreme Court of the United States, you have to ask permission, and they have to grant the permission. They have to decide it is a matter worth hearing. In our modern system, the circuits work pretty well. It makes sure everybody who has grounds for an appeal gets to appeal, while not overloading the Supreme Court docket. Uh, it does have a historical background and how we used to run it. Uh, because the circuits used to be exactly that. They were they were circuits where our Supreme Court justices would go out and ride them. I'd, matter of fact, I, I would have to Google it, but it wasn't, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't too long ago that our Supreme Court justices were still riding circuit. Like, I want to say the 1930s, they were still riding circuit uh, out there. Quaxa mm. uh, Mephedida has asked, uh, generally about circuit courts, how often are federal circuits created, changed, whatever, and who gets to make those changes? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think the last time we created a federal circuit was, what, in the 50s? Let let me find out real quick. Uh, Yeah, I would think so. I mean, that's the last time we added states. Uh, 11th Circuit history. (laughs) It's like so simple for me to just Google it. Uh, Actually, uh, the 11th Circuit was established by Congress in 1981. Oh, that's right. They they reorganized it after uh, some point in the 80s. Yeah. So... In 1981. Uh, Who establishes them are actually Congress. There is something called the Judiciary Act that determines how our circuits are administered, how they are created, how many people sit on the Supreme Court, uh, and all that. When was the Judiciary Act? I want to say it was the 30s or 50s. I I know Um, it came... No, it was much earlier than that because it was after Johnson tried to pack the court. Andrew Johnson, not... mm. But before FDR tried to pack the court, you yeah, think? I think before okay. FDR, because that was the whole thing with with him trying to pack the court was he was trying to push legislation that would allow the packing of the court. 
it doesn't happen very often. The last time we did it, as, as we just said, was 40 years ago now. And I think the last time before that was maybe the 50s. It tends to happen when you have a circuit that has become too big and unwieldy. Uh, to where they can't really manage it, and they really deserve to be their own thing. Right. Now, I would argue that as we expand the circuit courts, we should expand the number of Supreme Court justices to match. Yeah, well, that was also the argument that FDR made, I, I believe. FDR just went to pack the court. And oh, then, absolutely. He didn't actually mean anything to say. I mean, like, like, I, I'm, I'm saying... I'm saying we should at least match the number of our Supreme Court justices to the number of circuits we have, considering that we still do assign appeals from certain circuits to certain justices to read and brief. Oh, I didn't know it worked like that. Huh. Yeah, yeah. I'm, obviously, you know, the, how the Supreme Court, like the minutia of how they decide what to do and who does it, that has never applied to anything that I do on a professional level, so... Well, Although, I, like, doesn't they, doesn't they, the youngest one of the most recently added one, like, have to do errands for all the other ones? I don't know, but I'm going to say yes, because I love that idea. I I just love the idea that the Supreme Court has a hazing ritual. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to look this up and see if we can find anything. <laughs> and, but while Buddy's looking that up, I want to thank you all for joining me tonight. I know it's been a much more meandering episode than in the past. I do apologize. I had family in town last week. I didn't sit down and write this one well in advance or heavily research it. It was a simple topic, and somehow I still managed to fuck it up. Uh, that said, I am the Boozy Badger, Boozy Barrister. Uh, my guest tonight has been Robin Scully, a.k.a. Buddy Goodboy Esquire. This has been Boozy's Legal Funhouse. If you like it, you can tune in live every Monday night at 7 p.m. for the recording over on the Twitch channel. Or you can go to patreon.com slash liquor and become one of our monthly Patreon supporters here. And the best way to support us, as always, if you're going to say, Fat Man, you're not giving my money, is go to your podcast service of your choosing and rate us five stars. I don't give a shit what you say after you rate us five stars. You can tell me to go fuck myself. It's fine by me. Until next week. The algorithm week. is still a working, baby. <laughs> Until next week. I am the Boozy Barrister. This is Buddy Goodboy Esquire, my erstwhile guest. Thank you for joining us, and you have a wonderful rest of your week. Good night.